0: I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, an artist and psychoanalyst based in Sweden, who works with people internationally. And this is episode 280 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Julie Rescher. She's here to talk about her book, Negative Psychoanalysis for the Living Dead. Philosophical Pessimism, and the Death Drive. Julie Reshe is a leading researcher in psychoanalysis and professor of philosophy at the Global Center for Advanced Studies, where she directs the Institute of Psychoanalysis. She completed her PhD under the supervision of Alenka Zupancic at the Research Center Of the slovenian academy of sciences and arts she works at the intersection of philosophy psychoanalysis and neuroscience and her research topics include sexuality emotions cognition childhood and trauma studies you can support her work and gain access to the chapters of her new book negative psychoanalysis for the living dead as well as discussions of those chapters at her patreon patreon.com forward slash julie you can also follow her at facebook instagram and check out her youtube channel links to everything can be found in the liner notes accompanying this episode as well as at the main website RenderingUnconscious.org As with most Rendering Unconscious episodes, there is a video of this discussion at YouTube. Search for Trapar Films' YouTube channel. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T, film, at YouTube. Rendering Unconscious was recently awarded the Gradiva Award for Digital Media from the National Association for the Advancement for Psychoanalysis. Huge thanks to all of the fans, listeners, and guests of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. I couldn't do it without you. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can visit our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23carl. Your support is hugely appreciated as I receive no funding from outside sources. The only support, financial support, comes from the fans and listeners and guests that join me at Patreon. So thank you so, so much to everyone in our Patreon community. I love to see you and chat with you there. We've recently started a Discord where we can chat with people on an ongoing basis, which has been really, really wonderful. If you prefer Substack, I've also started a Substack where I post weekly exclusive content that's only posted to the Substack and Patreon. That's vanessa23carl.substack.com. As well for our weekly exclusive content at Patreon, we've started making sure there's an audio component every week. We're calling it the Magic Monday Podcast. It's available exclusively at Patreon. I'm excited to announce that my very first novel, Things Happen, was recently published by Trapar Books. It's my first work of fiction and was created largely using the cut up method, a la William Burroughs. If you plan to order Julie's book, or my book, Things Happen, or any of my other books, links to all of them are included at renderingunconscious.org at this episode's page. A listener suggested that I join the Amazon affiliates program, so if you're going to order the books, through amazon anyway because often that's the fastest way with free shipping why not click on the links from the rendering unconscious website page and send a few cents over to rendering unconscious podcast every little bit counts thank you so much for your support i've also added a button where if you want to make a one-time donation through paypal or an ongoing donation through paypal that's available also Thank you. Well, hello, Julie. Welcome to Rendering Unconscious. Thank you so much for being here to talk about your new book, Negative Psychoanalysis for the Living Dead.
1: Thank you, Vanessa.
0: Um, I love what you did just to start for your patrons, starting this Patreon and then making a study group where people could meet with you weekly and discuss the chapters. It was such a great idea, and I hope that it was really successful for you. And um, yeah, I love also that you put the videos up on YouTube so that people can follow along there as well with the book.
1: Thanks, Vanessa, and it's still functioning, they can still join if they want
0: for some reason. Maybe for the next book. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah. want to write any more books either, so. <laughs>
1: You cannot, it's like betrayal of this
0: book if you write another book because
1: it's like, it's not supposed to be written, even this one. You cannot just proceed writing another book, at least not in this kind of form. Um, Because if you're actually disillusioned in academia and in this kind of writing and being smart, uh, you cannot probably proceed just writing one more. I won't be able to find
0: excuse for, for another one. I understand that. I am also disillusioned with academia and writing books. So now that's why all I do now is like, make art because I'm like, what's the fucking point? You know, I'll just do whatever I want to do in the moment. And it doesn't need to add up to anything because it doesn't matter anyway. The planet for the future right now. I'm still functioning with
1: the discipline that I need to, you know, exist in the world somehow. But it's like it is suicidal thought, so the art, you know, disappearing from the world of playing, being smart in academia and just doing things um, outside of it. So I'm planning <laughs> suicidal thinking, postpone to the future form of disappearing.
0: It makes sense. I I found the book refreshing. I know in the beginning of your talks, you said um, you apologize for writing this book and you don't recommend that anybody reads it. (laughs) But I found it refreshing because I also find that the like, you know, especially like the pop psychology world of like, you know, promising, you know, you'll be better and happier if you just do these steps and everything is so banal. And yeah, it's kind of insulting to human integrity. It is insulting, but
1: maybe. But I came to see it as um, I used to be against it, trying to improve world. You know, you need to recognize we should stop stigmatizing depression. And then I thought it actually might be also a trauma response. You know, these people are so, it is irritating trauma response <laughs> and maybe humiliating to people, but it's also a trauma response. You know, you can sense suffering in there and attempt to escape it. And that's that's how I'm tolerating it right now. So I wouldn't see my book as profoundly different from the. It might look like, and it even in the description of it, I would write that it's opposite to positive uh, psychology culture. But profoundly, it's also dealing both of those cultures: the negative culture and the positive culture with the trauma. I also came to see human beings as suffering as such. Maybe that's my way of existing in the world. That's how I still can tolerate people, seeing them all as suffering um, and trying to find uh, escape from it, but failing in different ways, like through positive psychology, through the culture of psychology. But uh, even if they're super happy, <laughs> I'm tolerating them, knowing that they're suffering inside and that suffering is mostly what they are. And surprisingly, it finds a response in people. People can resonate with it. So it's not the, it is position of outsider, but at the same time, inclusion to something.
0: I think that makes sense. And that's a very empathic response to just understand that people are having their different trauma responses. And um, yeah, not trying not to judge them. Just, you know, people are doing, making their way, however that is each of
1: them is ridiculous in their own way <laughs> so the difference of this book the most profound one is probably um uh, that I'm writing from a position of depression not trying like giving up on I never was actually trying to escape it that much because I have troubles as a philosopher relating to uh, psych- psychological culture the positive culture but like questioning but at the same time uh different from writing from a position of depression like giving voice to depression is different from other attitudes to depression and to melancholia because whoever deals with it tries to uh, it stigmatizes it automatically even the word depression means it's something you need to get rid of and i was trying to um, give voice maybe to hopelessness to actually be in a position of depression because even uh, it is understandable that within the psychotherapy culture, this is what would be normally done when depression, when one deals with depression, it would be to get rid of depression. But even in psychoanalysis that try to reformulate, contemporary psychoanalysis tries to reformulate discourse about depression and melancholia, it would be still from a position of uh, from a position of, you know, normality. Like they, whoever speaks about it doesn't have depression. And at the same time, like rejecting it or condemnation of depression, rejection and stigmatization shouldn't be like that. And I'm wondering, I don't believe in this space outside of it. Like there is no, where, where are they speaking from? Like they don't have it. Even Kristeva in her amazing book, The Voice, The Black Sun, she's writing... Uh, about her own experience of depression which is the most beautiful part of it like what she feels in her body when she's her suffering but still she's like self-stigmatizing trying to um get rid of it trying to look for way out like that's this this is not normal even if she's the one representing it and she's talking about it from her depression but also patient and uh, what i was trying to do was actually talking about it not um Not from the position of trying to escape from depression or all of the internal suffering, wherever we call it. Depression is just normal world today that you'd use and people will understand more or less what you're talking about. But actually being with it and um, maybe connecting to others through it from this space, from not not giving guidance or hope how to escape, because it's the only way we normally deal with it. But like assuming that it's something that we all share, that's the basic domain. It's not that something went wrong the way we hope in today. I'm depressed, I'm suffering, I don't want to live anymore, life is meaningless, something like that. And it means that this deviation is not how it's supposed to be. And each of us (laughs) going through it and thinking there's something wrong with me, and it's not supposed to be like it because before maybe it wasn't. Or I know people who look happy and there's <laughs> something wrong with me. But what if it's not something wrong? What if it's it's all there is? And for me, I, like there's nothing left, to be honest. That's who I am. <laughs> it's nothing less substantial because everything else seems um, not genuine something. And... I'm not able to function in any other... I know I look happy, <laughs> cheerful. But at the same time, the profound truth is that um, this is the dimension I'm functioning in, and I don't think that it's secondary, that this is deviation. At least um, I have to think, because not, there is nothing else left. I have to think that this is the most profound, basic dimension, and I'm functioning in it, more or less, and I'm trying to see connection with people, Uh, through it not guiding them out and not guiding myself out of it and it's surprisingly that people are resonating with it like if i talk about this dimension as basic and something that we share people would come and say that they can also feel it of course i'm projecting myself and i'm imposing my way of thinking but freud did it too (laughs) so um, so maybe i can do it at least as a way of experimenting, of understanding human being and the world.
0: Yeah, and the people are resonating with it, you know, as a way of being in the world rather than something that needs to be fixed.
1: Yeah, rather than it needs to be fixed, because no, normally psychanalysis, even though uh, it suggests alternative understanding of uh, depression, of internal suffering, but it would be still guidance, executive like sessions would be still guiding, like psychoanalyst would be someone talking from a position where there is no depression. And um, I don't believe in this position. Even if they have it inside of them, they have to keep it as a secret because they need to be normal and healthy and <laughs> because they need to provide guidance. Or at least if you know, if you have experience of depression, you need to be the one either who get rid of it in a form or knows how to deal with it, like what to m- make out of it. Some kind of professional in getting rid of depression or dealing with depression. And um, uh, and even if you were, um, so, automatically, if you admit that you are depressed, you are even if you um, analyst, you occupy the position of analysis and the way people would treat you. Even if you wrote the book, <laughs> academic book that is published, like you are in a position. In relation to you, other people would play the role of analysis. You're not able to actually talk about it and to be heard, um, to be perceived not as someone that needs to guidance and to be fixed and help from others. Um, I'm wondering if there is any other if uh, analyst, if people can connect in analysis or whatever it's called, some kind of practice not occupying this position of uh, fixing other people or a position of an analyst as someone who is supposed to fix or guide or improve anything. But uh, in, other, in other kind of relationship, because this guidance, this automatic reaction, to me is a form of escaping, like not actually seeing others. And it's easy to understand why we occupy this position because it's extremely hard to admit. Like it's falling into... Um, nothingness with no words and lacanian psychoanalysis would emphasize the need when depression is mentioned they would emphasize the need to speak well to put it into words or some kind of proper bo- words or some kind of uh, proper language that would imply you escaping through the language through the symbolic from a proper way of uh, structuring symbolic from depression it's still guidance is still what to do. And even Kristeva, she would talk about um, linguistic retardation. (laughs) It's her term, (laughs) like depressive retardation. And so this guidance through symbolic somewhere. And I'm wondering um, whether we can maybe uh, do something else, not escaping, uh, admitting it and um, not... It's not escaping. It might might be that we won't be able to talk because this retardation, <laughs> but linguistic retardation, not ability, disability to talk or to talk well. Um, it's probably true but maybe it's also something very important that you cannot talk about, you cannot put into words and precisely because of this it's very important. Uh, so, this retardation and retardation is, I know it's not politically correct a uh, term, my daughter told me <laughs> not, never to use it. Um, but uh, this retardation is like getting slower. And I am retardation, you know, I'm not, that's what I represent the inability to talk when words are failing, when I'm not able to uh, communicate something well. Um, it might be disorder, but it's also, maybe it's, and the absence of mm, not being clever, you know, not being even wise, but something like this, when you're not, um, you're failing to uh, conceptualize, or you're failing to say, or you don't find, uh, you're failing to find a meaning, this failures may be something that is important, and we they can also connect People And it's also a form of uh, existence through through death. So instead of trying to improve everyone, get rid of depression, speak well, and connect through this, like be all healed and happy ever after together, maybe there is, first of all, it's impossible. (laughs) But second thing is maybe we should, it's possible to exist on this level and to connect with others on this level. Maybe actual connection is this, not superficial one, but the actual one is happening in there. And I see it as, a, for some reason, as a feminist, feminine dimension, uh, which is not traditional association because feminine uh, dimension would be normally associated with absence of suffering, like healing, life. Um, but for me, and this dimension of maternal an infant in psychoanalysis is traditionally a um, dimension of uh, generation of enjoyment. Uh, but for, for me, this, the most pro- profa- profound layer of you know, existence, the primitive one, for me, it would be rather associating feminine, uh, maternal, with destruction and suffering and death, like seeing it as the space, the most profound space where we are falling into. The basic one, the, um, so it, and it's com- completely probably different comprehension of a human being from uh, Freudian standards, psychoanalytic to this one comprehension of the world as uh, not profoundly but still different. And here I'm close to Sabina Spielrein, who I think uh, was talking about something similar with associating maternal and death and destructive. This uh, see the mother see the primordial dimension it's all about destruction and dissolution, and that it might result in life, children and all of those, <laughs> but it's still through destruction of maternal body and it's maternal that is going on through dissolution or, and it's suffering and um, and for me, it's the profound layer of of existence where we still connected uh, profoundly and there is no way of escaping through anything like symbolic or uh, well any form of escape would be rather ir- illusionary in relation to it
0: you want to talk a little bit more about Spielrein and and the death drive and then also Catherine Marabou's kind of um, yeah, expansion of it
1: so Catherine Sabina Spielrein. I regret not writing enough about her in the book, but I'm going to publish hopefully a chapter about her in upcoming volume on love and death, rather death and love. <laughs> uh, so Sabina Spielrein was the one who introduced the concept of uh, death instinct, and Freud, uh, one can say, stole it from her. He gave her credit, but not enough for us to remember that the concept initially belonged to uh, to her. And in her formulation, it was different. Like there's different comprehension of what is death drive, unlike what Freud uh, transformed it into. Uh, and her is more, we could say, feminine understanding, linking it to because she's woman, maybe <laughs> linking it to the maternal and. Not at least not uh, her initial point of consideration, it's not Freudian point of consideration, it's thinking through her experience of being in love, and uh, her patient uh, women, and their feeling of being in love, and linking it to the, not the sexuality, and enjoyment, and all of that, to some extent, but uh, it was a link of death, destruction, love, maternal, so completely different shades uh, that Freud would later give the concept of the death drive. And so I, would, I really like Sabina Spielrein's work, but rather as, um, as a mood of her creation. And I think one should deal with her works. And I'm trying to do it. Uh, not through um, analytic Comprehension is you know we, the way we normally deal with philosophical works or with psycholytic works, trying to trying to work on the level of concepts or theories or not through yourself you it like you have to stay neutral this scientific kind of approach, which is less in psychoanalysis because it's more uh, there is more space for some kind of creativity and your own readings, but it still works with concepts with um, you know trying to meticulously to see what was told and what Freud said, what is correct, what is this, there's interesting thing that Freud discovered or Lacan discovered or Spielrein discovered and I would try to safeguard especially Spielrein from this comprehension because there is other way of thinking maybe not necessarily thinking, it's rather failure of thinking when you, um, through your own experience, through your own Existence or non existence, you actually a human being that goes through uh, experiences of death and dying and suffering and being in love. And uh, even if you work in the conceptual level with those concepts, trying to analyze and um, reference someone's ideas and combine them together, it's still what we're hiding, I think. It's still our own experience and talking about ourselves, even. Um, or our absent selves, or universal maybe uh, experience of love or dying that we are, um, that is familiar to us, in which we are disappearing. So I would, uh, I'm trying to work with Spielrein, like with the spirit of Spielrein, you know, being her. Uh, because to some extent, uh, I am. I mean, I'm getting where she's coming from. You just don't need to read her that much. You have to. But it's rather what is there inside of you that is resonating. And of course, it's totally unprofessional and weird. But um, I prefer be- that mode. So <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> just to me, it's to more put-
0: psychoanalytic. Like, you know, people take what they get out of certain theorists or thinkers, rather than having this debate, you know, over who's right or how to correctly read it, you know? And it's not interesting. I don't get it.
1: Well, before maybe when I was studying philosophy, it was like, it was something that would motivate me. Uh, but slowly as I'm aging, I lost completely disability. Like I don't get it how people can be so excited about those concepts and arguing about those concepts and digging deeper and reading Molacan, I don't completely get it like there is the only thing, and it's also weird and not healthy probably The only thing that I would it's not that it motivates me, but I feel that it's important enough for me not to be excited but to look into it, to dedicate myself to it is the suffering the human suffering, and the trauma, and when people, uh, expose it, or think through it, or failing to think through something, and it's rare to find, and it's hard to open up in others, and, um, you need special settings, and it requires, like, it's very rare in the world, but, um, maybe just, perhaps my weirdness, but maybe it's also something that, uh, People, maybe it's just certain stage of life, <laughs> you know, aging, mm-hmm. when, or my taste at least the way I can tolerate the world. But everything else, the philosophical academic uh, environment, it's only rare things that would resonate um, and form of communication that I can still tolerate and. It's, as I age, I get more more disillusion in even those things. Like, would would if I would the way I can comprehend the person is through their trauma, uh, because I can see now, according to me, to my comprehension, um, which I'm not imposing to anyone. But there is nothing substantial in a person except for their suffering, and the individuality they have is the. Their suffering the trauma that creates them, and they exist in a mode of uh, choosing to uh, to exist approaching that disappearing and uh, so this fr- fr- fragile maybe uh, dimension of existence this is what I would value and um, for me, this is the way of comprehending others and the world and relationship and there is Nothing substantial and uh, apart from it, from me that I can relate to or motivate myself uh, through. But at the same time, I see people around and students that are still able. And I remember myself before when I was able to, um, maybe when I was less depressed and I was able to tolerate other things. But I also think that um, maybe it's the stage of life, like uh, older stage of life when there is less of you, when your existence is more fragile, you see people from um, from different, from underside of their existence. There is first uh, stage more, when you're more happy, uh, more things excite you when you are all against depression and you want to be happy. And then there is other stage. I'm not saying that's the good one and it's a progress. Um,
0: might be the contrary when it's time for you, you know, to disappear <laughs> yeah before it was when we believed that there was some sort of fantasy that this knowledge would like help us in some way or make us feel fulfilled or something now we're just decaying
1: <laughs> and you, you, used, you used to you know approach maybe some kind of life you need to build your life and then live your life right more or less in harmony not happiness but like good successful life and now it's such a joke, <laughs> so, and you—you you might, um, with all the signs of not success, but life is—you uh, know—you got what you wanted, where you was what you was reaching for, but it's even worse than you was trying to get it because um, the way it relieves itself to you, it's like a, just like a farce, you know. You you don't have reasons to complain now because like you published the book yay, <laughs> you wanted to publish a book before, <laughs> and now it's—it's it's such a joke that it—it's not—it's um, not what it promised to be, right? Before when you were naive, and it would—it means that it would never be. You'll never get to this place of um, when you are uh, feeling successful and your life is complete, maybe for a little while. But it's—you understand that it's an illusionary thing. And totally. other people won't believe
0: you. <laughs> They'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> They'll find out in their own process. I think, though, also that's what that's what a lot of analysts' mistake is, is that, you know, like I said, the analyst isn't in, in the position of the subject supposed to know, right? And I feel like a lot of analysts buy into that, you know, they believe that the subject's supposed to know, you know, <laughs> and they're acting from that position. And I think that's a, that's a big problem. Well,
1: the the problem with subjects supposed to know is that um, it's problematic because even if you don't know, it's still a certain position of not knowing the two imposed. So it's problematic in this way, and it's the whole psychoanalytic structure is extremely problematic, and it's quite hard to transform it into. In, even the idea of transformation implies the improvement and someone operating on it. So uh, even knowing that you're not supposed to know, not give knowledge is still some kind of even negative guidance, guidance in a negative form, like not giving guidance, uh, a prohibition, still guidance.
0: You it's still also seen as like withholding guidance. Then then you're doing something, you're still doing something to the person.
1: You still are in position of being analyst, even if you are uh, sub subverting it in a way, but uh, at least probably in some form is better than the conventional therapy when uh, uh, psychotherapeutic practice, when one promises salvation and nothing and other is guided to some form of salvation from suffering or improvement. There is, at least this one is more interesting when you're subverting the
0: at least maybe there's an attempt not to do that. Because it's exactly like what we were just talking about. You can guide people to be like, okay, you know, it, studies show that if you go on a walk three times a week, you'll be less depressed. <laughs> and then the person does it and finds that's not true. <laughs> you know? Wow, I'm still surprised. And then now no, you failed. It's just like uh, setting yourself up for infinite failure. <laughs> you need to go four times. <laughs> Next yeah. week. Twice a day. (laughs) Just keep increasing it. Um, I also think later in the book, you talk about politics a bit. And I thought that was really interesting how you talked about conservative politics being like nostalgia facing. And then there's more like revolutionary, emancipatory politics being a little paranoid but also like they both promise this sort of salvation like if we could only rid ourselves of the obstacle the conservatives might say like oh the immigrants or whatever Uh, and the revolutionaries might say oh like we have to topple this government then we'll be able to form one that will be better and we'll all be happy you know but like it doesn't it's not how it works doesn't work (laughs) I thought that was interesting as well maybe talk a little bit about that
1: so first the concept of negative psychoanalysis, it's actually originated as part of critical theory, with Jacobi criticizing capitalist society at, and um, contrasting the concept of negative psychoanalysis to positively oriented conventional psychology, which just claims that your own suffering is your problem, you need to change yourself, work on yourself, so you'll be good subject of, uh, in service of capitalism, like it's your own fault. And Jacobi this idea of critical psychoanalysis or negative psychoanalysis comes as the criticism of uh, social order, that it's not your problem, but it's a problem uh, with the unjust uh, social order, and therefore what is required is some kind of revolution to overthrow it. But uh, and i like the idea his idea of negative us because it means embracing not trying to heal your inner suffering but at least embracing it for the reasons of revolutionary transformation like the spirit of uh that your suffering is shared suffering so you unite with others and you uh, and dedicate yourself to revolutionary changes so up to a point where you uh don't escape from it and unite through it, I like it, but the problem is later, you know, you transform it and decide society will be better, society with less suffering, I would question it, because it won't, um, you can solve certain problems and you probably should, like, uh, overthrow capitalism, something like it, um, but it won't uh, bring the absence of suffering, it will just transform suffering, so like, my idea of negative psychanalysis forever negative psychanalysis. There is suffering, nothing um nothing else substantially, only suffering, and it's the way we unite it. We unite with others. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to improve anything, but it just any improvement would be transformation of this suffering, the new suffering will invention of new suffering. Better, not better. It's hard to say uh, which suffering is better, you know. But so the, um, this idea that something that has to be something has to be changed, and the salvation will come either in the form of individual salvation, which is uh, conventional psychology would propagate. Like you need to work on yourself or psychotherapy. You need to go into psychotherapy, and then your life will be fixed. The salvation in this life will be will come. You won't suffer anymore and you're not supposed to, or the form of collective salvation, which critical theory and critical psychoanalysis offer, that we need to transform, we need to introduce some revolutionary changes in society, get rid of some uh, problematic people, political groups, or phenomena like patriarchy, and then happy society will be be installed. Um, It won't. And I would share Foucault's idea here of... uh, because he was politically active, but he called himself pessimist activist. So you still have to do it, but you will fail. And there's, and there is beauty about it that you're doing it, know, knowing that it's in vain, um, knowing that it would uh, you would fail, and you just uh, working on the next failure. Not necessarily in the problem you're working on. Not always patriarchy, but it's even. It's even more suffering after you overthrow it, and it doesn't mean that you shouldn't have been doing it. you should <laughs> but precisely it will end uh it won't end well and maybe uh, real commitment is when you know it like real commitment to people for me it embodies the it's embodied in the end of life care you know you won't save anyone, but you still care. And it's a wasteful effort, but you have to do it. Not that you have to, but you're doing it. So that's the, the failure. What I would, um, what I would value, the, I end up valuing the most in this life.
0: No, I totally agree, and I think that's that's one of the things that's. I don't know if it, maybe a little relief, the only small relief that I feel like psychoanalysis provides, can provide is people coming to that position where they realize there's no solution. There's nothing that's going to save them. There's nothing that's going to fix it. And then making your way from there, you know, like that's, that's I think the best we could do. And I think art, uh, by
1: we longing so much for this dimension and dedicate uh, Ourselves to this dimension because there is something in there that is wasteful per se. It's not. It, it is a failure. It's not supposed to be um, not a failure. It is like the failing. I would say the operation. Death drive operating, <laughs> or something like the like creativity for the sake of creativity, not for anything else. Maybe, maybe beauty too.
0: Yeah, I feel like I choose art because I still feel ridiculous and go through the phase of, like, why do I do this? This is ridiculous. What is the point? There is no point. I hate myself and I hate this art. (laughs) But I do that less than when I'm writing. (laughs) When I'm writing, I feel like that, like, pretty much every day. (laughs) At least when I make art, there's, like, a few days where I'm like, oh, I like doing this. And then I get to that point again. And then I'm like, but I keep doing it. (laughs) So I choose that. (laughs) It's like dedicating
1: yourself to something until you hit the point of its meaninglessness and impossibility, and then it helps you to hold on to the illusion that some other kind of activity is less uh, meaningful. Like it's unbearable. The core of things, uh, I think, is suffering. Unbearable was relationship with people and basically existence in the world and any kind of activity, uh, the core of it—is uh, results in suffering and impossibility of proceeding. So we switch one to another until we'll discover this, this core, <laughs> the meaningless core of it. And this is how we're functioning
0: more or less. Totally. Should we talk a little bit too about, you talked about the death drive for the individual, but also how society has this death drive. Death drive
1: of um, society is uh, Todd McGowan's uh, concept that he introduced. So death drive is not something that belongs to individual, like in Freud. For Todd McGowan, he's trying to think of the death drive as a collective drive, or as a collective force, a collective something, and it's quite similar idea um, with uh, for that Spielrein introduces. So it's basically initial version of the death instinct that Sabine Spielrein was talking before Freud started to talk about it. Uh, it's like the Freud here between Spielrein and Todd McGowan is an unnecessary link if you take him away. <laughs> the death drive is going to be um, shared. It's going to be uh, the phenomena that uh, create a social bond, not only individual, but something in between People and this is how it's for me. It's very interesting in this way. For Schpilrain, uh, one could say that it's um, social phenomenon because she would talk about love and ma- motherhood. And like Freud, she would actually talk about it because when Freud talks about sexuality or love or whatever, it's he's not talking about. He's talking about the desire inside the subject, like what you, uh, which is the man uh, thing the desire of the individual to possess. It's not the interrelational. It's not something in between others. It's what you want inside your head. You know what you are. So it's not love. If it's inside you, it's your longing for others, not love. Love is in between people. It's not a maternal um, drive. It's not within you. It's in between. It presupposes the connection to something, even non-existent. Know just somewhere outside, it's not within you. Love is not within you, motherhood is not within you, it's there somewhere. (laughs) There is where the point where there is no you, even sexuality, it's not the desire to have sex or something like it, it's um, in between, it's there, it's not in the person. So, in Freud, he takes death drive, which is initially in Spirane interpretation, it's not. It's more intersubjective, less with more about uh, uh, self-destruction, the absence of you the, when you depart from yourself, uh, when your eye dissolves, when your self dissolves. And Freud makes it back your own uh, instinct or your own drive uh, or what you want, even your own self-destruction within you. So it's more inter. Connectivity in McGowan, Todd McGovern and uh, Sabina Spielrein, and it's from this position. If it's intersubjective, you can talk about death strife, You can link it to love, to uh, social bond. You can uh, you can comprehend it as something that constitutes a social bond that is self annihilating, self sabotaging. This absurd um, of self, this self sabotaging nature of uh, connectivity between others and in relation to this self-sabotaging, self-anniculating connectivity of people, which can be embodied in love um, or something else uh, this self is secondary uh, or more illusionary uh, and the death drive that self has uh, as illusionary, more illusionary entity would be just the result uh, of the uh, death drive which is uh, inter subjective phenomenon why are you asking
0: about it? <laughs> just because I think it's interesting for people to hear
1: about you know. it, it's mm. not common to think about death drive um, in this way because normally the death drive would be associated especially in American context it would be associated exclusively as uh, well all psychology even psychoanalysis very uh, is uh, oriented uh, to individual fixing individual problems and comprehending what is a person the subject and this kind of thinking uh, especially and the death drive would be something that person manifests and um, the own the individual desire and it's interesting to think of it um, as intersubjective, but it's quite hard to um, not only with death drive, to transform to change the language in such a way and this attitude, not to start with yourself, but to start with um, interconnectivity with other with others, like the seeing self as more illusionary, because the whole psychology and psychanalysis, even philosophy. Um, they would basically, this is the main thing they would uh, talk about and the way language stru- is structured is through seeing it as, uh, as the instance, the initial instance of existence. It's very hard to talk about society actually uh, or social bond actually and start with it without seeing people as separate and just one who is uh, added to each other just technically, it's very uh, quite hard to do.
0: Well, I think you did a beautiful job in your book, and um, I think it's really important for people to understand that and uh, and understand the lack as, like, constitutive of society and politically and, and of the subject.
1: <laughs> By the way, for Sabina Spirin, she has, uh, she, has um, she only cu- writes a couple of uh, words about it, but it basically overthrows Lacan's comprehension and this more conventional comprehension of how language works or how symbolic works. Because for Lacan, and normally we would talk about speech, talking as constituting subject, you know, the individualization and separation from the symbolic, from the primordial order, maternal order, like subject appears through language, uh, through talking. Uh, but for experience, she would say that talking we would find re- we find relief in talking to others because through talking we participate in the symbolic shared space of um, dissociating from yourself so it's the departure of uh, on the contrary it would be maternal dimension of connecting to others which is like obvious idea right but for us it doesn't work that way so talking is like um trying to make yourself, which is absence, understood, like being language, talk with others, is connecting with others. When the child talks to a mother, it's connecting, uh, being with a mother, existing with her, synchronizing with her in a, form, um, in a form of language. Of course, there are different dimensions of uh, symbolic order in Lacan and in Kristeva, where there is the more uh, less individualized speech, more individualized speech, but profoundly, it's the, still this maternal dimension of connectivity where you are the one who is talking uh, It's rather secondary in relation to this very talking and the um, connection uh, through language.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, maybe alienation comes first and the child's trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know when I... Did the classic GCAS. It's the thing that I remember the most about it was someone arguing with me about something I said and I said, but they said, but Lacan said blah blah blah. And I was like, well, Lacan is not God. You know, it's like <laughs> Lacan is a man, was a man, and he had some really interesting ideas that can be very generative. And people seem to enjoy trying to master them. But that <laughs> doesn't mean that everything he said is right or even accurate because he was just talking and yeah, people uh, Wrote it down as best they could, you know. <laughs> the very idea of um, even L- Lacan is the worst to
1: comprehend it this way, right? Because he is all there is no essence of Lacan that you can comprehend and then use it and then comprehend the people. And it's quite hard to understand how people, um unconsciously, even without realizing it, treating Lacan in that way because he's not like he's not subject supposed to know, <laughs> we know it, and nonetheless, people would say it, even admitting that there is nothing to find in there, you're not supposed to have this attitude to uh, Lacan, but nonetheless this is what they are articulated. maybe because it's still uh, one wants to be a part of academia and we need to practice this kind of rely on our fathers and um, whatever, in whatever yeah, form. Yes, mastery. But it's still very strange, especially in relation to uh, Lacan. Instead of being Lacan, you know, being provocative, weird and uh, nonsense, (laughs) people would actually try to uh, make sense out of it.
0: trying to make a system I like reading Lacan or I used to I used to like reading Lacan um because I felt like it felt like reading a seminar felt like the experience of analysis when you're having like a kind of analytic session that Uh, where you get to some sort of insight. It's like it just takes you on this like weird tangent and you're going around here and you're like, what's going on? And then all of a sudden you have this kind of like, aha, okay, I understand something. And then it disappears and then you go continue on this like journey. I felt like it kind of mirrored the psychoanalytic session. And I, I think my understanding from reading maybe when he was speaking in person you know maybe people got that kind of feeling as well from his provocations and just like it made them work and and try to make sense of things and they were able to like yeah make sense of something in themselves and and maybe that's why it resonated with so many people but Mm -hmm. I don't see it as like a system that he was trying to impart that's like yeah something you can teach in this kind of logical way
1: it is it is interesting experience and maybe the philosophy in general works in this way Because it doesn't work for me that way anymore, except for some really rare things that don't irritate me. Um, But maybe before it was, it was interesting to get the experience of uh, interesting interpretation or interesting, just experience of uh, thinking about it in, uh, in this particular way. But it, Now feels like trying to, um, feels like trauma response (laughs) in a good way, uh, trying to escape from something, um, into this, distract yourself from something more profound, which in the dimension in which you won't be able to do all that things. It's like watching a show, a TV show, or something, it's a similar thing. But um, my question was rather, what is this that we are escaping from? Where, um, like in Lacan, it fails, the comprehension fails, and you're nullified in a way, and you start all over again. But this more of the dimension of a failure itself that is um, interesting. That Lacan seminar would only touch through the failure, you know, when you're losing it. What if it's just just the dimension of loss, you know, <laughs> nothing else, but <laughs> you're losing it faster than you, uh, than in Lacan, just it only exists as, as, as lost. Which is, Lacan is subverting, right, academia? It's not, but still, um, he's he is part of academia now in this way, like normal way. What if it's that just the and despair and nothing else, you know, you don't even try to um, comprehend it.
0: Yeah, I know, that's why I've actually interviewed some, more, some Jungians lately, because I thought I'm kind of more interested in the trajectory of him as a person and that his, like, theory is so outside of academia and, like, you know, this split that they had, like... They like, like the Jungians themselves just kind of did their own thing and they don't have an interest in being And Of course, the academics like totally poo poo them and just think he's crazy or whatever. But like, I kind of think it's interesting that they like made their way in this separate way outside of the whole kind of discourse in that way. Um, So then I've had a couple of Jungians on just to like, like, yeah, hear about what they're doing. Cause I think, I think that in itself is more interesting to me right now. Like, there is a way to work and not be part of this system. (laughs) <laughs> i still don't like uh,
1: jungians but now i realize uh, first for what jung did to spireen but the other thing is when you're in a- academia you're not supposed to like them and even though i'm not in academia i don't like academia but i still don't like jungians, so I don't like don't like
0: anyone anymore yeah well you can exist there too <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's what i think
0: but I also did, I did realize at a point, I'm like, where did I get this bias? It's just like imprinted into me. Like, oh, and like Wilhelm Reich went crazy. And like, why do I believe that all these people went crazy? What if I actually went and looked at their work? Would it be as crazy as it's made out to me? It's like, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. But I'm at least like, yeah, trying to be more open to other people's forms of. You know, yeah, I'm punished managing. and I'm even more crazy than you So, <laughs> 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 Well, we're almost at the end of the hour. Was there anything you wanted to mention that we didn't get to? Anything you have coming up or anything going on with GCAS or anything at all?
1: Yeah, I'm going to, uh, with Todd McGowan, we're preparing edited volume on Death and Love. And I don't have to write this one. I'll just write a chapter on Spielrein and <laughs> That's it. And I'm not planning any books or anything. I want to dedicate myself to art, <laughs> but it's still planned. Um, yeah, otherwise, total frustration.
0: There, <laughs> well, it was lovely to speak with you. I'm glad we had the chance to do this. Thanks, Vanessa. And feel free to be in touch anytime. Bye, Julie. Bye, hey, Vanessa. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Julie Reche. For more, be sure to check out her book, Negative Psychoanalysis for the Living Dead, Philosophical Pessimism and the Death Drive. And join her at Patreon, where you can support her work and gain access to the book chapters. As well, you can follow her at social media and check out her YouTube channel. Links to everything can be found at renderingunconscious.org. You can also follow me on social media at Twitter and Instagram at Rawson underscore, that's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore, and TikTok at Dr. Vanessa Sinclair23. Plus, i recently made Rendering Unconscious its own Instagram page. Visit at Rendering Unconscious. As always, huge thanks to Carl Abrahamson for creating the intro and outro music for Rendering Unconscious podcast. You can find out more about him and his work at carlabrahamson.com. And now the song, I've Changed My Mind, from the album Disturbance, by myself and Pete Murphy, available at petemurphy.bandcamp.com. You can also find our music available at Spotify and other streaming services. Just search for Vanessa Sinclair and Pete Murphy. Enjoy. The who, the why, the how. Also, I am myself, themselves, just ready to tell me who heard some that formerly in him equally well line of descent up from the pan again make a simultaneously revealing and confronting the semiotic concerned with first things let it happen i've changed my mind i've changed my mind i've changed my mind I've changed my mind.